Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up posts. Another week ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege this week of sitting down with Benson Shelton, who is the rector of St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, which is located in Culpeper, Virginia. Benson's a really interesting guy with a really interesting story. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Benson, welcome to the Mockingcast. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. It's a pleasure. Now, you are the rector, the, the head guy, the top dog at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Culpeper, Virginia. Culpeper, right? Is that the, how I pronounce it? Yeah, that's correct. What it, what's in Culpeper? Tell me, like, what is, what's the draw? What, what is, what is, what's the big, what is the thing that, that identifies Culpeper as the metropolis it is? The, the bustling metropolis of 50,000 people. I think what's more, uh, I think what's great about Culpeper is, is, number one, is it's just, uh, is its history. Uh, you know, it certainly has a good future, but it's the history of it, I think, is what really draws people here. We're situated half, you know, between Skyline Drive and D.C., and so we, we get a, a mix of folks here. And you, how long have you been the rector there? Two years. Wow. So they, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> That's right. For them and for you. Now, now, you actually, you have a black belt in karate. <laughs> I do. So when people say our rector kicks ass, I mean, they could mean that in multiple senses. Yeah, no, it definitely helps out with disgruntled parishioners. It's a different way. It's a different pastoral tact, but it, but it works. Have you ever seen those Christian fighters that go around, like Christian ultimate fighters and like Christian power lifters and stuff? Yeah, no, there was, a, there was a guy back in the day on the Ultimate Fighting Championship, I think, that used to carry a cross into the ring. His name was Chemo. And so that, uh, that was always a bit strange for me. And you love UFC. You're a UFC guy. I, I do. Yeah, no, I, I love the sport. You're into things that are, you're, you're into contact sports, gladiatorial <laughs> kinds of things. You know, man, now I'm just getting old, so... You also, at one point, considered going into a monastery. Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, I had certainly thought about it. The uh... Tell me this is... Please tell me this is before you met your wife. It is. Okay, no, I mean, okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so that's the story. Uh, I was actually my last year of seminary. Uh, I, I'm someone who's been very much called or attracted to uh, both the study of theology, but also... Uh, a more contemplative life. And so, but then, you know, I met my, my lovely wife, Adrienne, or we reconnected. We actually met in a religious experience class in, uh, in college. And we reconnected. Where, where was the college? Where was this? Radford University. Where is that? It's in Virginia. It's in southwestern Virginia. It used to be the, the Women's College of Virginia Tech. Oh, wow. And now they let men in. I know. But see, I knew the numbers, the odds were ever in my favor. So. Well, there you go. Tell me about, a little bit about how did you go from, you know, the womb being born and you're from Martinsville, Virginia, right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So you where how do you get from Martinsville, at, you know, in the crib to rector, Episcopal rector? Like what? <laughs> take me, give me like a quick tour. By the way, you said you're drawn to the contemplative life. Nothing screams contemplative like UFC. 
That, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very contemplative. Yeah. So, uh, how did, well, first off, I, I, my father was a Navy man. And so we, uh, I was born at the, uh, the, the Air Force base in Langley, Virginia. And then we immediately took off to Australia. We were in Exmouth, Australia for two years, none of which I remember, unfortunately. And then we went from there, uh, my, to Chicago. We, uh, my dad, I uh, was company commander there in Chicago for a while, pushing boots there. And then my folks got divorced. We ended up back in my mom and dad's hometown, me and my mom, uh, of Martinsville, Virginia. And so I, I grew up there. Uh, and then fr- from there, we, uh, yeah, I went through school. And uh, we didn't really go to church until, we, until my mom actually met my stepfather and they got married. And so um, then we started going to church. What kind of church was that? That was a Church of Christ, and I aren't they aren't they all churches of Christ? Isn't it all? <laughs> aren't they all Christ churches? You don't understand. This is the one true church. No, the um, how did you get booted out of it? Is that why you're not still there? <laughs> why, why? Why? If it's the one true church, why'd you go? Yeah, right. The uh, no. The, if you know anything about the churches of Christ, uh, they will make they make the Southern Baptists look liberal. Uh, so we. Went church hopping like like many families do, and so this was probably about when I was in middle school. And so we started looking around at different churches. Uh, th- this church was incredibly warm uh, and appealing to us. However, they they didn't have piano, they didn't have any type of musical instruments. Uh, later, of course, we'd find that that was one of their doctrines that the New Testament church is uh, isn't supposed to have any type of musical instruments whatsoever. Also, of course, women are not allowed to speak in the church. Uh, and then uh, the church, uh, some bad things happened. They started to split. Uh, we saw people uh, acting incredibly ungraceful. And, um, and then from there, we ended up splitting with it. You know, we, we left the church altogether. And my folks didn't return to, uh, to church until I actually was in seminary. And they started going to an Episcopal church. So that was a good fit for you, the Episcopal. The Episcopal uh, or they decided, yeah. that, hey, he's, if it's good enough for Benson, it's good enough for us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Like if he's going to be like, we've got, we've got to support the, the, the franchise. Exactly. Now you're, where did you go to seminary? I went to Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. That would be VTS. I know it. Uh, and theologian there is, um, Catherine. Sondriger. Sondriger. Fine theologian. Mm-hmm. And what was like, how would you, if you were going to, if you were going to describe like, the moves in your faith journey. I mean, you're a Mockingbird fan. You're a person that I would say is a pretty orthodox, you would self-describe, right? As a pretty orthodox, fairly traditional kind of Christian. Uh, very much so, yeah. Now, has that always been who you are? Not at all. So, so I mean, going back to the Church of Christ, I mean, we watched uh, we watched some horrible things. The, the Church of Christ was using verses out of Second Corinthians to bring parishioners up to into, in the front of the church and essentially shaming them. Uh, this is what kind of led to my parents and I uh, leaving that church and my parents leaving that church, leaving the church altogether for many years. Uh, but when I was in nothing college, like, a public, like a public shaming, <laughs> <laughs> like a public shame will sour you on anything. No doubt, man. The uh, and then from there though, I you know I. I had, you know, my, I, I was one of those guys. I was one of those church nerds in the Church of Christ. And so my pastor there, the minister there, used to come pick me up from high school and get me out. We actually drove uh, to Nashville at one point uh, to watch debates. Uh, this is a big thing in the Church of Christ, uh, all the apologetics, uh, proving that our church at that time was, was right and everyone else is wrong. And so 
I found myself, uh, you know, essentially doing the exact same thing that, uh, that I found that I did not like in the Church of Christ to other people, uh, which is shaming folks, you know, by saying, hey, you, you, uh, you're not of the one true faith in this way. Uh, so I, I left that with that church with my parents, um, kind of set me on a journey. I kind of threw myself into, uh, reading about early Christianity, uh, even flew, even flew to, can you walk me back to the debates? Like, what are they debating? Like, what would they debate? Like, what were, like, would actual people from other denominations come to the debates? Yeah, no, they would. I've watched uh, Church of Christ, uh, ministers debate Roman Catholics. I've seen them debate Pentecostals. Uh, you know, all kinds, man. It, it was uh, a fascinating, I mean, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, subculture. Now, it, dude, 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 when in that context, right, you're with Team Church of Christ, right? You're pulling out into the bus, you know, you guys get out. On the ride home, did you ever hear like, man, the Catholics really whipped us there. Man, I never, <laughs> that Mariology or geez, the Methodists and the, the whole bishop thing. Maybe there's some, or is it pretty much like we took them down? Exactly. We, we took them down, man. It was, uh. And that's, I mean, that was one of the interesting things, uh, you know, about the Church of Christ is we knew what we believed and we knew how to argue for it. And most people don't. And so, uh, did you ever convert people at work? Did you ever have like a Methodist pastor like, shoot, can you, can, is there still, can I ride home with you guys? <laughs> no, not at all. But, you know, I was uh, in, in high school, you know, I, I was certainly trying to reel people in. And I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know if that was a. Uh, I don't know if I really got a lot of people from doing that. Well, I mean, I mean you know, you don't have, you're in high school and you don't have instruments. There's no smoke machine. No, You're already fighting an uphill battle. I mean, well, that's an interesting discussion in and of itself. We didn't really do the whole Sunday school, you know, youth group type thing. You know, we, we were right there with the adults. And so we were, uh, you know, I, I was learning, you know, had a, a, a Greek New Testament and working on that, you know, with my pastor while I was in the Church of Christ, you know. And so we were focused on. The apologetics aspect. Were you like so, snoozing through the first year and a half of seminary? Like, dude, I, dude, I took Greek. I don't, come on. Yeah, that's right. Accelerated program. Uh, no, but it, it was it was a good experience, man. I'm, you know, I, I I'm thankful for my experience in the Church of Christ. Uh, that's where I got baptized. That's where I really came to faith. Uh, you know, they say that they, they push baptism like nobody's business. Of course, you go all the way under the water. Uh, at that point in time, though, I had a cast on my arm, and so I'm not sure if that part of my body is saved, but uh, everything else went in. Resurrected so body. You're coming back with one arm. Mm-hmm. So uh, from there, uh, after we left that church, I mean, it, it crushed us, you know, because it's not just a loss of uh, of a church. You know, some people leave a church, and it's, uh, okay, I'll just pick another one. Uh, for me, it was really a loss of truth, and so uh, it was an, almost like an existential crisis. I even I started studying uh, early Christianity, uh, even started studying uh, early Christian Gnosticism, led me to fly out to Los Angeles and uh, meet with the Gnostic Bishop of the United States. You wow! There's a Gnostic Bishop of the United States? Exactly. And he hasn't been tried on heresy or anything. No, he, he was a former Roman Catholic priest, I think, and he, he left the, the priesthood and became, you know, the, the leader of the... Ecclesia uh, Gnostica within the United States. What are his what digs are his... like? Does he have a big rectory? What, I mean, what is his? What is the bishoprics? Uh, you know, the, the residential. Is he living large or what? No, get this. It's uh, I, no, not at all. But uh, but he is in West Hollywood, and so well, of course, uh, yeah, of course. And so great guy though. I mean, he's uh, like an old uh, Hungarian emigre. You know, he, he's just a old, you know, like a gentleman, and he, he was a great guy. Uh, 
And so I went out there and met with him and talked to him about some of his work. And, and that was fascinating. What was his pitch for Gnosticism? Like, give me the quick, like, how did he, like, all right, let me tell you what the strengths of our movement are here. <laughs> I mean, look, history's not been kind to us, but let me give you a kinder, gentler, you know, what, what, what was his sales pitch like? I mean, what was that? He considered himself a, a Valentinian Gnostic, you know, and so and so one of the things that, of course, they talk about is how narrow uh, the uh, race was, so to speak, or the votes for uh, Valentinus when he when he was almost became the the Pope of, of Rome or the Bishop of Rome, uh, and so. The worship service. It's like and, Hillary Clinton, just like Clinton, just missed on the electric car. One that he had the popular support, but he was close. The Gnostics were in the majority. Exactly. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, you know, that they look at uh, the question: uh, Why do why why does bad stuff happen to good people? Uh, they focus in on that man. It's the uh, that's really their their thing, and so they're when when people come to them, they don't try to uh, say, well. Evil really isn't a something; it's a nothing. You know, like Augustine does. They say, "No, this this entire creation was uh, created by a false uh, creator god, and that's why it's imperfect, and that's why everything is kind of messed up." And so it was it was an interesting time. And so again, I was searching. Uh, left there, he told me the the worship services are so similar. I mean, the liturgy and whatnot in that church to the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, any liturgical church. Uh, and so I started going to an Episcopal church. Do they ever I, just get people in? Like, they're just like, oh, we're looking for a church. It's lovely. We're not. It's just like Catholicism. It's kind of like, <laughs> I wonder how many people they just rope in who are kind of like, well, the coffee hour's great. I mean, like, you know. You know it's, it is West Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that's it, so fascinating. How many Gnostics are there in the in North America? I have no clue, man. And that was so many years ago, it feels like now. But, but uh, yeah, and you wanted to write to this. I mean, you were going to go be his disciple. I mean, you were kind of like, hey, I've read his work. Like, you know, teach me. I, I certainly wasn't thinking about being a priest at that point. That was something that caught me while I was uh, at Radford University. And uh, largely in part because of the Canterbury ministry, the Episcopal campus ministry there. It was uh, an amazing time. Had a wonderful lay campus minister uh, there. And, and so and I started discerning a call when I was there and kind of left my Gnostic, uh, my Gnostic interest behind, but I certainly threw myself into the study of early Christianity. And you were a Spong fan for a while, right? I was, you know, I needed Spong in many ways. Uh, you know, I hate to admit that in some, in some sense, but I, I needed Spong at that time because after coming out of the church of Christ, which, uh, had so shaped, uh, my thinking and whatnot, I needed to have almost a, uh, uh, a deconstruction of all that. And Spong really fulfilled that role for me. Uh, the Jesus Seminar stuff did as well. Uh, but, you know, that in many ways for me was was milk for babes. I really, uh, after it got me to where I needed to, to go, and I, I felt very much like God was, was leading me in a different direction at that point. And so uh ended up going deeper into it, man. And, and so I started studying theology when I was in seminary, most definitely, and um, and kind of Still keeping the historical stuff in the background, but, but throwing myself more into theology. So what was, do you think, from that point where you kind of, you said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going Gnostic, all right? I'm gonna right. <laughs> and you kind of were, you went to, in a sort of traditional, more left of center liberal Protestantism. Now, you, you would probably be, again, a pretty traditional Orthodox Christian. Like, what, was, what were some of the segues, like, what were some of the key books, ideas, or what was the thing that like cinched it for a relatively orthodox Christian faith? Mm. Well, you know, at the same time that I was reading a lot of this stuff uh, in ancient Christianity, I, I was also reading Evelyn Underhill and her writings on uh, 
on spirituality, the contemplative life, and, and whatnot. And she did a lot in that. And so I was, uh, the Church of Christ had said it was the, the one true church, and, uh, you know, and it had the answers to everything. And then, uh, but, you know, so w- when I started doing my study of early Christianity, I think Evelyn Underhill played a, a, a real role, a strong role in uh, leading me to the Anglican tradition. And so, and also a more orthodox, orthodox view of the faith. Uh, eventually, though, you know, I started reading uh, these guys like John Milbank and Stanley Hauerwas and some of these uh, radically orthodox guys. And, and those, those served a purpose as well. Theology and Social Theory. That book, yeah, that yeah, book yeah. reads well, like a bad translation. I've had to read that book several times. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy, his wife's like an English professor. How can you write sentences that dense? But yeah, but I like, I like that was important, some important stuff for me too. How did you get connected to Mockingbird? Like, how did that happen? Right. Well, so let me, let me start off in, in seminary before. So I'd been in the Church of Christ, and then I had kind of segued into uh, liberal Christianity and the Episcopal Church in many ways. And, and what I found in both of those traditions is both are so incredibly law-based. It's about what you do. You know, you, uh, for the Church of Christ, it's, it's what you believe, making sure you believe all the right things before breakfast, so to speak, and, then, and, and also uh, acting in a, you know, in a cer- certain legalistic way. Uh, and then within the liberal Christianity that, that I knew, I started feeling like, in some sense, uh, I got the liberal version of that. You need to do these things, or these things, or these things, or else you're not a real Christian. And within that tradition, I also found the primitivism, you know, uh, uh, that I also uh, disliked or found that I disliked in the Church of Christ. Uh, by prim- by, by primitivism, primitivism, you mean sort of like going back to... to... Trying to get back to the to the early church, right, yeah. Right. And so, and, and you see that everywhere, even today, especially in, you know, the a lot of the emergent stuff as well. You but, have to uh, watch, because like if you pray to become the New Testament church, like what happens if you become like the Church of Corinth, man? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't really until uh, seminary when I was listening to Kate Sondreger that I think I heard the the gospel in some sense, or at least existentially. You know, I, I'd heard the, the gospel read, you know, over and over, you know, throughout my years, you know, but we, the first time I actually experienced the gospel in some sense uh, was when I heard Kate Sondreger lecturing on uh, Martin Luther and his articulation of justification by faith. And, uh, and it was like one of those uh, John Wesley experience with the, the warming of the heart. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, that, that's, what, that's what it's all about. Uh, St. Augustine once said, of course, that he said, I've read Cicero and I've read Plato, uh, but, and I've read all kinds of beautiful things within them, but I've, I've never heard in any of them uh, you know, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will refresh thee. And so that's what I felt when I first heard that articulated. Uh, and you didn't get that from the Gnostics. They never gave <laughs> No, not at all. I never reached Gnosis, I guess. So that, so that had a pretty profound impact on you, that, that sort of opening up of the Reformation tradition and the law gospel stuff. So the Mockingbird was, did you have friends that were like into Mockingbird or... Not in seminary. Uh, it wouldn't be until maybe my first uh, my first year of ordained ministry after I, I got out of seminary that I actually came into contact with Mockingbird, and it was actually uh, I I had been influenced by Kate Sondreger and 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 Carl Bart and all those uh, cats there when when I was in VTS. So I was reading a uh, Bardian oriented uh, blog online, and I came across a review of Grace and Practice by Paul Zoll, and and that's where I really came into contact with the. Mockingbird message, and it was 
one of those aha moments. So I had had that experience in seminary with Kate where I you know, felt uh, something was just true and beautiful and right about that, that gospel articulation. But it wasn't until I read uh, PZ's uh, Grace and Practice, I think, that it all just uh, fell into place. I'm like, that's exactly right. That's what, that's, what, that's what it's all about. How has that awareness, like reading PZ, Grace and Practice, how has that shaped how you do day-to-day stuff as a parish priest, as a, as a pastor? One of the, the main things, man, so when I was, I served first uh, in ordained ministry as a deacon in charge of a small African-American congregation in Martinsville, Virginia. Uh, and while I was there, you know, and I had been influenced by the, the, you know, by PZ at that point, and, and I was preaching, and, and one of the, the little old ladies of the church, amazing, amazing woman, um, came up to me afterwards, and she said, no, I really appreciated your your presentation, your sermon. She said, We've had so many priests uh, who preach all around the message, but never really get to the heart of it. And, and they preach history, but they don't preach the gospel. And so she, and she said, and so it was almost like, you know, in some sense, she, she felt like they hadn't been fed. And so to see the message, uh, articulating the gospel message there in a small African-American church in one of the... Uh, and one of one of the places in Virginia that has the highest unemployment rate, uh, and and then uh, from there going to Great Falls, Virginia, where I served as an associate rector uh, for four years, and seeing the same impact of the gospel message on folks in one of the wealthiest parts of the the country, I think that's been profound for me to see how the gospel uh, affects people uh, of different races, socioeconomic classes. Uh, and so that that's had a huge impact on the way I see I see things, and then so and then coming into Culpeper and seeing these this the impact of the gospel happening over and over again. My senior warden, uh, in fact, a, a wonderful guy, a very cool guy. Uh, he he's fallen head over heels with the the mockingbird message, and it's because I think it speaks to the heart. That's that's beautifully put. What 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 do you think right now? What idea or what thinker or what Kind of, is is there anything that is specifically shaping your ministry right now that you're like, hey, look, if you're listening to this, this is what I would tell you to engage. Like, is there something particular that is kind of igniting your passion that you want to share with people? Well, right now, man, the one of the things that I find so many priests uh, and pastors and ministers in general just being weighed down by is this this works righteousness that has so infected the uh, the ministry. And it's this this idea that we need to do the latest, greatest, coolest, biggest, flashiest thing uh, in order to have, you know, this business model of church so that we can have a healthy church or a bustling church or a productive church. Uh, and I see so many priests, uh, young and old, uh, burnt out by this. And uh, I've seen even priests uh, who are fun- who are functioning atheists, but still working as priests, and that that's scary to me. And so, uh, I think the the law gospel hermeneutic that we're given in Mockingbird and and you know and, and and Martin Luther and this wonderful Reformation tradition, I think allows me to understand what is what are the essential things and the unessential things, to uh, to figure out what what is essential to the ministry and my ministry and the adiaphora. Uh, that I shouldn't have to worry about. Sarah Coakley says something, she's a, a theologian, uh, says something similar about contemplative prayer, uh, about you know being able to understand from uh, sitting in prayer what, what phone 
phone calls to answer, which emails to respond to, and, and what not to. Um, so, so the gospel message for me, man, is that, you know, it's Jesus Christ uh, and Him crucified uh, who died for us while we were still sinners, I think, that uh, is really the true power of, of my ministry, uh, not the things that I do and don't do. And so, so that's that's been amazing. Again, it's been an absolutely profound, I think, on my thinking through the ministry. Benson, thank you for spending some time with us uh, and for your ministry. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure, man. We'll have you back. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with Good morning, friends. David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist, who has provided everyone with their perfect Christmas list this week, coming from Charlottesville, Virginia. Hi, David. Hello, Scott. Hey, Sarah. Hey. Sarah Condon, the inimitable one, who's now published author and yeah. chewing a pen right I now, know. which... Which I shouldn't is, do on the mic, should I? I mean, this is this <laughs> no. I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear it. I mean, I couldn't hear it. This is the first post-churchy uh, appearance, at least, of Sarah on the on, on the cast. How does it feel, Sarah? Um, good, really good, exciting. So, yeah. Re- responses Great. has been so um, you know lackluster. It feels like. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Wow, people certainly have been snatching up this book in droves. It's really cool to see exciting it's great sarah how many times was i referenced in the book um twice once in the text and once in the acknowledgement so i actually made the real the text of the book not just the thank yous yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i like that (laughs) so david my uh production associate has been tied up in knots and unavailable to do anything of consequence. Why is that? Something <laughs> has happened this week in Charlottesville. A Herculean effort. Yes, mea culpa, Scott. A, uh, we've been sending out our year-end appeal and update, which is sort of hand-addressed and uh, really, we, you know, spent a lot of time on it. And uh, 3,000 of these letters went out this week. And Dave Peterson, if we hadn't had him around, or Margaret Pope, let me give her a shout out. Uh, I don't know what we would have done, but they're out. This is the you know the annual uh, December time when we try to uh, hopefully raise our budget for the next year. And we have a lot of you know, as people know, we have a lot going on, and we could really use their help and uh, you know all sorts of incentives in that letter. And if you want to be sure you get one, uh, just uh, send us an email, or you can sign up on our mailing list on the site and. Um, would love to let you know how you can support uh, the work that's going on. And why should they support it, David? What, what is, I mean, what is, why, why Mockingbird? Why give to this endeavor? Because people, it's Christmas. I mean, I'm a dog lover. Sarah Mc, 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 uh, McLaughlin is doing the eyes of the angel thing. And like, why, <laughs> why is it Mockingbird something that people should seriously consider parting with their treasure, uh-huh. their hardest to keep going. Well, I mean, if, if, for the reason that we've published Sarah's book, if nothing else, uh, I mean, I kid, but I think, you know, it doesn't take that much 
cash to do what we're doing. And we're doing a ton. And I think if 2016 has taught us anything, it's that we're living in an extremely merciless world, getting more merciless every second. And the 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 voice of God's grace or the, the message of the gospel, I think um, has, it's always urgent. It's never been more urgent and it couldn't possibly be more urgent. And we're doing everything we can to trumpet that in a variety of ways and ways that really reach people. And I think, um, you know, um, I couldn't imagine a better place to put your put your money. I, I think that we're, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I think we're doing it pretty well. At least the the fact that the two of you have come along uh, in the last couple of years has been such a gift, and I think it's um, just a real encouragement to me that what we're doing has some legs and is also, um, you know, important. I mean, what, what do you? Uh, but it's 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 easier for other people to put it into their own words. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I think don't give money to dogs. Give money to Mockingbird because it reminds us that we are all actually dogs. I don't know. <laughs> I just I feel like. You if know, you were a dog breed, what would you be, Sarah? Um, a mutt. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't. I, I feel like the work that we're doing is more vital now than it's ever been. I really firmly believe that. I believe that for um the people I know who love Mockingbird who are not churched, of which there are many, and I believe that for people who are in the church, um, because we no matter what the push is from either end of the political spectrum, we keep um, preaching the gospel of grace. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, for that, I give Mockingbird money. So, yeah, I certainly need to hear it every week. And so Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like the, the, the God doesn't need Mockingbird in any way, but I think that uh, it's certainly, you know, I got an email just yesterday from a guy, a church planter who's, going through all the things that RJ talked about in that podcast and, and said that Mockingbird's been a real absolute lifeline to him and um, life-saving even in the midst of just drowning in achievement and accomplishment and sort of resentment. And, uh, you know, we get, we get sort of messages like that all the time. And for something that's predominantly virtual, even though we get together in our conferences, that's really incredible to see. And, you know, th- there's so much to blame the internet for and, you know, online discourse and, uh, you know, disembodied, uh, you know, shouting. But I, I I believe maybe there's something at our best, there's something redemptive going on. Um, you know, it helps, you know, especially when Scott doesn't wear a tank top. <laughs> I hope I hope everyone noticed the dig I took at our friend, our wonderful podcast host in the uh, gift guide. I, I, I had way too much fun writing that thing. <laughs> and Sarah, if you didn't know, there's also a cargo shorts, uh, you know, link in there to where people can get their own top flight Orvis. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Those are old anyway. school Owen Taylor. That's what my dad used to order. <laughs> That was a bridge too far, but. All right, let's talk empathy. Yes. So this week, all sort all over the place. Uh, Paul Bloom, a psychologist at Yale, has written a new book called "Against Empathy: 
And, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Boston Review, these uh, articles are popping up everywhere. And, you know, at first you kind of roll your eyes because you, you do this, uh, you know, culture criticism for a while and you just notice how people, they, they look for whatever is going to get them clicks and traffic. And they say, okay, I'll write something against this, a contrarian take. I'll do, it's sort of a, the only reason Slate.com exists. But, um, this I, I sort of dismissed it at first, and then my sister-in-law Bonnie uh, Zoll sent me it again, and I read this re- piece in um, the Boston Review that he wrote against empathy. And I'll read to you. You know, it is clearly a sacred cow, and I, I don't know if it's a sacred cow so much as a an amazing fruit, uh, an important quality. But here we go. This is Paul Bloom speaking. The word empathy is used in many ways, but I am adopting it from its most common meaning, uh, which is what philosophers used to call sympathy. It refers to the process of experiencing the world as others do, or at least as you think they do. To empathize with someone is to put yourself in her shoes to feel her pain. Generally, empathy serves to dissolve the boundaries between one person and another. It is a force against selfishness and indifference. It's easy to see how empathy could be a moral good and has many champions. He references uh, President Obama and, um, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, Martin Luther King. Uh, He says, most people see the benefits of empathy as akin to the evils of racism, too obvious to require justification. But then he goes on to sort of mount this enormous qualification about empathy. He says empathy is biased. We're more prone to feel empathy for attractive people and for those who look like us or share our ethnic or national background. Empathy is narrow. It connects us to particular individuals, real or imagined, but is insensitive to numerical differences in statistical data. As Mother Teresa put it, if I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at one, I will. And he sort of says, okay, you can't do policymaking according to empathy because 100 deaths are worse than one, even if we know the one. Um, and sort of, it's kind of in favor, he's in favor of abstraction. Uh, I think of, uh, you know, the life of someone in a faraway country is worth as much as the life of a neighbor, even if our emotions push us in a different country. Uh, you know, without empathy, we are better, without empathy, we are better able to grasp the importance of vaccinating children, responding to climate change. These acts impose costs on real people in the here and now for the sake of abstract future benefits. But then it gets really interesting when he talks about relationships. He says empathy might not scale up to the policy level, but it seems like an unalloyed good when it comes to intimate relationships. And uh, he describes his therapist. He goes on to basically describe what the Enneagram talks about in number two, uh, in the the two types, that a, a selfish person might go through life indifferent to the pleasure and pain of others. Uh, while the empathizer, for the empathizer, the feelings of others are always in her head. 99 for everyone else and one for her. Like that you don't, you don't even, you're so attuned to what other people are feeling. You don't even know what you feel. And that uh, Jameson, Leslie Jameson, the great author says that empathy can fuel an ironic kind of self-absorption. The encounter with another person's experience becomes another way of experiencing one's self. And so there's this, uh, he talks about the costs of empathy that, you know, individuals scoring high in unmitigated communion report asymmetrical relationships where they support others, but don't get support themselves. They're also more prone to suffer depression and anxiety. And what he's actually sort of looking for is something called rational compassion, which doesn't totally subsume the self that kind of can, 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 uh, feel for another person without feeling exactly what they're feeling. Have a little bit detachment. He quotes a bunch of Buddhists here. And he and, and, and to do that, he expands on the difference between empathy and compassion. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, do you, um, your close friend has a child who's drowned. An empathetic response would be to feel what your friend feels, to experience the terrible sorrow and pain. In contrast, compassion involves concern and love for your friend, the desire and motivation to help. Uh, but it need not involve mirroring your friend's anguish. Talks about it. So there's a lot here. There's a lot here. The New York Times sort of says he might have a little too much faith in reason. Uh, but um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm a person who's always, who, who scores as a two on the Enneagram. And so I took part of this as a bit of a personal assault. <laughs> but uh, I know you guys aren't. So what do you think of it? This guy makes Mr. Spock sound like a romantic. <laughs> so all I could think of when I was reading this was that during my uh during college you know when I was uh thinking about converting to Judaism I was at Temple one Friday night and I can't By the way thank God we didn't lose you. <laughs> and I'm and by the way Judaism not that it could make up for this but Jenna Jameson who is a film star of the adult variety. Huh. Uh, is converting to Judaism. Is and she? She's, and she also has a crush on Bibi Netanyahu, like all the Republican primary candidates of both genders. And she says his wife is a lucky, lucky woman. So, Sarah, I'm not saying that it makes up the That's difference. the exchange. I mean, it, yeah, it, but, they get but Jenna she, Jameson. I mean, you guys get like, me. You're like four Jenna Jameson. Sorry. <laughs> Religiously, amazing, I mean. amazing. This is with that point. in mind is- <laughs> um so i i couldn't tell you what the text was and i think the the rabbi was um gosh I, I, i'm trying to think it was around the high holy days or something but he was talking about our response to people's pain and he told a story about a young boy um and being impoverished and needing help and he didn't say and it's important to know he didn't say the christian response would be but he said maybe the maybe the very religious person's response would be was how he put it. And this is in, you know, this is in the South um, where they're surrounded by very religious Christians would be to cry. He said this would that would be, you know, she the, this woman, you know, let's put, posit that there's this woman and she's very religious and she would cry for this for this young boy. But he said the Jewish response would be to give him money and to be practical and to help him. And that has stayed with me through the years. And I remember being mildly offended by it when I heard it. But there was something about that that stayed with me that um, and in seminary, I remember feeling this way a lot. Like we would gentrify other people's pain. Right. We would take their pain and make it so much our own when in when in no way, shape or form can we identify with what they're really going through. People who are not as privileged as we are. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder when I read this too. Like, can I actually feel what it feels like if my friend's child drowned? Am I even really capable of that? I mean, I'm not capable of that. I don't know what that feels like. And so, while I understand being sad, not under, I understand an empathetic response. And certainly in theological education, this is a big word right now. Um, I really appreciated what he said, because I think we have to be careful that we, it doesn't become our own self-sadness project, right? But I'm not a two. I mean, I, you know, when, when we did Mockingbird and Tyler, and I can't remember who got up to speak. It was probably Ethan. His talk was so good. And it was me and a row full of Mockingbird guys and my husband, and they were all weeping. And I was just sitting there so I, maybe I'm not very good at empathy. I don't know. 
Invisibilia did an episode called The Personality Myth, and they talk about, in the episode, the work of Walter Mischel, who is, wrote a book called Personality and Assessment, which no one has read, but the experiment everyone knows that has any kind of psychological pop armchair awareness. And basically, it is a study where he sits the kid in the classroom and says, um, if, if with a marshmallow on the desk, and everyone's going to leave the room, and if you don't eat the marshmallow, we'll come back and give you two marshmallows. And this has sort of been the benchmark of personality theory in psychology, and the idea being like people with impulse control are, you know, this is the bedrock standard for success, credit score, everything that good, good in life is if you're the two marshmallow person. And what he actually doesn't hold to this theory, he actually thinks what's most consistent is situations. And that the kid that cheats in algebra might be cheating because it stresses them out and you put them in English class and all of a sudden they're creative and earnest and studious. And so I think that on some level, this, this maybe the connection between empathy and impulsiveness is really an awareness of mystery that really who we are confounds us and reality confounds us. And maybe they, they, they talk about this guy in prison in the, in the invisibility episode who is a rapist. And over 15 years, he seems to have had a real change in his personality. And he says, I mean, and again, this is going to be so offensive to many people and I hear it, but he says, I'm doing time for someone else's crime because that person died. And what happened was like midway through a sentence, he had bonded with this other prisoner who did something really stupid that really it could add to his sentence and really jeopardize his well-being. And he started beating the guy. He said, you're my friend. You're my friend. Why are you doing this? This hurts me more than it hurts you. And he saw himself in the mirror beating the guy. And he realized this is what all the male role models did to me. And he stopped. And over a couple of years, he actually rewired his personality. Uh, and some of it was, again, like I think that maybe, it, I think of Simon Peter when he says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus <laughs> doesn't go away. And, and it's almost like Peter is saying, you don't know me. And it's almost like Jesus is saying back, you don't know you. So maybe empathy is really openness to future possibilities that are elude us, including especially for ourselves. That's, that's interesting because, you know, it, <clears throat> in The Atlantic, there was a, an article that almost said exactly the same thing, Scott. Uh, <clears throat> talking about a, a new experiments on the temporoparietal junction in the brain, that empathy depends on your ability to overcome your own perspective, appreciate someone else's and step into their shoes. Self-control, self-control is essentially the same skill, except that those other shoes belong to your future self, a removed and hypothetical entity who might as well be a different person. So think of self-control as a kind of temporal selflessness. It's present you taking a hit to help out future you. We are shadows of our future selves. So my child and I came to this place to meet him eye to eye and face to face he made my daughter laugh then we embraced we never knew
really the question is, can we know anything at all, David? Moving yeah. on. Yeah. Holy smokes. This um interview in the Atlantic Monthly with Donald Hoffman. The title is The Case Against Reality. He's a professor of cognitive science at the University of California and very interested to find out mid snuck into that interview that he is a the son of a pastor. Did you guys note that? Yeah, I saw that, yeah. And in fact, he starts out his entire search for the nature of reality by interesting in the question, are we machines? His reading of science initially was that we we are machines, and that. but his dad was a minister in a church there saying we're not. Anyway, his th- general thesis is that the world presented to us by our perceptions is nothing like reality. That according to sort of natural selection, an organism that sees reality as it is will never be more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality but is just tuned to fitness. Never. In other words, we've been shaped... That's me. I'm totally out of touch with reality and I'm way into fitness. (laughs) Um, And grooming. We've been shaped to have perceptions that keep us alive. So we have to take them seriously. Uh, if I see something that I think of as a snake, I don't pick it up. If I see a train, I don't step in front of it. I've evolved these symbols to keep me alive. So I have to take them seriously. But it's a logical flaw to think that if we have to take it seriously, we have to t- 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 we off- also have to take it literally. And I mean, he goes he goes really far in this interview. He says the idea that what scientists are doing is measuring publicly accessible objects. The idea that objectivity results from the fact that you and I can measure the same object in the exact same situation and get the same results. It's very clear from quantum mechanics that that idea has to go. Physics tells us there are no public physical objects. Neuron, brain, space, these are just symbols we use. They're not real. It's not that there's a classical brain that does some quantum magic. It's that there's no brain. (laughs) Quantum mechanics uh, says that classical objects don't exist. So this is a far more radical claim of, about the nature of reality. It does not involve the brain pulling off some, some tricky magic here. But most of us are born realists, he says. We're born physical, physicalists. This is really, really hard to let go of. And then he comes full circle. He says, nevertheless, for now, I don't think we are machines. As a conscious realist, I am postulating conscious experiences on, as ontological primitives, the most basic ingredients of the world. I'm claiming that experiences are the real coin of the realm. The experiences of everyday life, my real feeling of a headache, my real taste of chocolate, that really is the ultimate nature of reality. Whoa. Whoa. Mind expanding. If I had a mind, it would expand it. (laughs) Boom! Exactly. Yeah, I don't have much to add to this. I mean, uh, it felt way over my head and like I was back in uh, Mississippi Public School for, you know, chemistry or something, but... I mean, it's interesting. It is. I, I love science fiction. So I kept thinking, like, I kept going to science fiction movies immediately in my head um, that the reality that we perceive is not actually real at all. I also kept thinking of uh, this book I'm reading by Dr. Henry Marsh called Do No Harm. He's a um, uh, neuro neurosurgeon, neurosurgeon, sorry, in England. Um his, and he's been in practice for like 40 years. So it's fascinating for so many reasons. But part of the compelling reason I wrote the book is I heard an interview with him. And um, he said, you know, our main tool we use in, in neurosurgery is a tiny, tiny vacuum. Because your brain is just jelly. And we just 
backing the parts of it up that need to go. And um, <laughs> it was su- it was such a bizarre. I mean, to think about this thing that feels so important and so vital, and it just gets sucked up with a vacuum by this guy, you know, <laughs> containing all memories and all. This is the kind of stuff I find really comforting, oddly, though, you know, I mean, because everything feels so important and costly and anxiety provoking right now. And the fact that maybe we're just like living in our own perceived reality is very comforting to me. You, you mean the matri- the Matrix, clearly. Yeah. This is all the, the Matrix. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, lo- yeah. I love the Matrix. Follow the yeah, white they- rabbit, guys. Follow the that's, white rabbit. That's our advice. Yeah, it's funny that Keanu Reeves, like, was he Bill or Ted in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? He, he was, was Bill. 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 He's Bill in all the movies. Like, you know, like, excellent. And like, Morpheus. Like, he just, you know, like, he's pretty much the same. Except, except The Devil's Advocate, where he plays a very bad Southern, he does oh, a very yes. bad Southern accent. Oh. It's very, not compelling. But I, and I'm not detracting. I, I think he is good as Bill over the years. But, I mean, he is Bill. John, uh, yeah, John Wick's. Yeah, something that Robert Jensen said in the interview that we did with him a couple weeks ago that has stuck with me. When I asked him about what was, he was basically surveying the history of theology and what were the big pitfalls. And he said the disillusion of the medieval synthesis of faith and reason. I think, like, I don't know that I share that judgment in that before the fall, we still would have needed grace and faith. Like, there, even the prelapsarian human being was placed in a world beyond their comprehension, finite and fragile. And I think that uh, we walk by faith and not by sight, not just in matters of religion, but, but in matters of reality. So there you go. Because I got to have faith. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk, Charlie Brown. Yeah, I think this is. Uh, I did not notice this either. The I think something called God Updates wrote some uh, an article. God Updates. The, <laughs> I, I it sounds know. like a, a website I would never ever look at, but I, I love it. I know this was incredible. This was unbelievable. Um, so it, uh, it talks about the moment in Charlie Brown's Christmas special that you've never noticed. And I hadn't noticed it. And I looked back at the stuff we'd written that Matt Schneider had written about the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and we didn't mention it. Um, and this is the moment. You know, it's, it has to do with Linus, who is, you know, associated with his security blanket. Throughout the story of Peanuts, Lucy, Snoopy, and Sally, and all the others work to separate Linus from his security blanket. But in that climactic scene of the Curly Brown Christmas special, when Linus shares what Christmas is all about, he, he drops his security blanket. And the author says that he's convinced this is intentional because the specific moment he drops it is when he utters the words, fear not. Fear not. And uh, I'll just read to you what the author says, because he says it all. He says, it's pretty clear what Charles Schultz was saying, and it's so simple, it's brilliant. The birth of Jesus separates us from our fears. The birth of Jesus frees us from the habits we are unable or unwilling to break ourselves. The birth of Jesus allows us to simply drop the false security we have been grasping so tightly and learn to trust and cling to him instead. The world of 2016 can be a scary place, and most of us find ourselves grasping to something temporal for security, whatever that thing may be. 
Essentially, 2016 is a world in which it is very difficult for us to fear not. But in the midst of fear and insecurity, the simple cartoon image from 1965 continues to live on as an inspiration for us to seek true peace and true security in the one place it has always been and can always still be found. I mean, amen to that. Yeah. I'm so, um, so I've loved this for years. And so I totally thought this was a Matt Schneider's piece. I thought we had hit on this before. Um, so I'm loving that we're just like, that we're seeing it now. This is one of those things. If you actually, if you get the book, it it also does a pretty good job of this, the, the commemorative Charlie Brown uh, Christmas book. And I've used it in Bible studies, like almost every Christmas Bible study I do, I'll bring in the book and we'll talk about that moment. Um, it's just, it's just so good. It's so good. It's like a, I, I cannot read um, Luke chapter two without thinking of this moment, you know? So there's a guy, um, Father Reniero Cantalamessa. I'm sure you're both very familiar with his work. Uh, <laughs> so he was actually appointed preacher to the papal household by John Paul. And I think he stayed in that role up through Benedict's papacy. And basically, this guy, he's a, uh, I think he was a Franciscan, and he, uh, he's a, he was a Capuchin, which is, you know, the Franciscans were getting too wild and crazy, so the Capuchin was the reform order Shut it on the down. Franciscan. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like when Ozzy Osbourne got kicked out of Black Sabbath. Like, I'm thinking, how whack do you have to be when Black Sabbath's like, dude, the drugs, the craziness, it's a little <laughs> too much for us. <laughs> So the Capuchins, you know, but he, um, he would preach to the papal household and I guess the inner circle of the Cardinals in Advent and Lent. This is the job I want. But in, I remember years ago, he preached a sermon in 2008, which stuck with me. And I'll, I'll just, it, it, the Charlie Brown, Linus's, the whole recitation of the Christmas story from Luke and the dropping of the blanket reminded me of the conclusion of the sermon. So in the, in the end of this sermon on Paul's understanding of justification, he says, this is the most necessary conversion for those who have already followed Christ and have lived at his service in the church, an altogether special conversion, which does not consist in abandoning what is evil, but in a certain sense, in abandoning what is good. Namely, in detaching oneself from everything that one has done, repeating to oneself, according to Christ's suggestions, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This emptying of one's hands and pockets of every pretension in a spirit of poverty and humility is the best way to prepare for Christmas. We are reminded of it by a delightful Christmas legend that I would like to mention again. It narrates that among the shepherds that ran on Christmas night to adore the, ch- the Christ child, there was one who was so poor that he had nothing to offer and was very ashamed. Reaching the grotto, all competed to offer their gifts. Mary did not know what to do to receive them all, having to hold Christ in her arms. Then, seeing the shepherd with his hands free, she entrusted Jesus to him. To have empty hands was his fortune, and on another plane will also be ours. All his grace and empty hands are not the worst thing in the mm. world. And li- like Linus, we can drop our blanket. And he does pick it back up again, which is so interesting. So maybe <laughs> life is a perpetual dropping and picking up again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you, my friends, and have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes and give us a rating. Maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. Maybe even pass it along via social media to a friend. We exist because of the generosity, support, and enthusiasm of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are forever grateful. The podcast is produced by yours truly, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend.